Go to overcomecompulsivehoarding.co.uk slash online therapy to get 20% off your first month of cognitive behavioral therapy with weekly sessions online with a therapist in addition to worksheets, a journal, meditation and yoga videos and unlimited messaging. There's strong evidence that CBT can help people who hoard and accessing therapy online can be affordable and accessible. Find out more and get your discount at overcomecompulsivehoarding.co.uk slash online therapy. Welcome to the Overcome Compulsive Hoarding with That Hoarder podcast. I am drowning in stuff and trying to find a way out. Listen as I explore the issues and delve deep as somebody profoundly affected by hoarding disorder. Find out more, including links to subscribe to the podcast and all my social media at overcomecompulsivehoarding.co.uk. Finally, I am not a doctor. I'm just a hoarder doing her best. So do seek professional support if and when you need it. So I am here with Dr. Jan Eppingstall, an Australian counsellor who specialises in working with people who hoard. Jan, how are you? I'm great. I'm good. I'm happy. Good. Guess what? What? This is episode 50. <gasps> wow. That's I an know. achievement. It is. That's huge. Wow. Well done. Little Thank golf you. claps. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> So today we're going to talk about something that is really relevant to a lot of people who hoard, but not talked about as often, and that is acquiring. Now, people think of acquiring in the context of hoarders to mean shopping, but it can mean far more than that. It can mean accepting things from others. It can mean getting things that somebody has left you in a will. It can mean gathering free items through like Facebook Marketplace or, you know, somebody leaves a table on the side of the road with a sign saying free and you kind of have to take it. With those different ways of acquiring, do the motivations behind those different types of acquiring tend to be the same or is shopping different from, say, picking up a table at the side of the road? Yeah, look, the short answer is yes, it is different. Um, The motivations behind those different types of acquisitions depends on the kind of disorder that the person presents with. But to be honest, acquiring and hoarding hasn't really been well investigated. But an overwhelming majority of people who hoard acquire excessively. So I've had to dig back into the archives of my first thesis way back (laughs) when in 2002 bleep um, and refresh my memory about some of this stuff, especially around motivations for buying compulsively. So first, we kind of need to do a little bit of defining because what you're talking about there, there's um, there's kind of two sort of separate concepts. They can overlap, but compulsive buying is really an impulse control disorder. So 50% of people with compulsive buying problems also have clinical level hoarding. So those who buy compulsively um, obviously present with a greater level of hoarding pathology because more stuff is basically coming in and they're further along that hoarding continuum. 
up the right end. So compulsive buying involves excessive, uncontrollable, time-consuming and repetitive shopping or buying in response to negative events and or feelings, which result in negative consequences such as social and financial difficulty. So it's this irresistible kind of urge to buy um, and it's anxiety-driven Um, And it's an urge to perform an act that's pleasurable in the moment, but tends to cause distress and discomfort later on. Um, So it's sort of that type of tension relief or gratification, usually temporary following the purchase. So it's kind of like a self-harm in that way or what we now call non-suicidal self-injury or NSSI. The release someone gets from cutting is similar to shopping. Um, And other types of impulse control disorders like compulsive buying also include gambling, trichotillomania, which is hair pulling disorder, excoriation disorder, which is the skin picking disorder, and kleptomania. So those are kind of in their own little world of, of, of impulse control. And my first thesis when I was doing my honours year explored materialism and hoarding among okay. uh, a bunch of other relationships. Yeah. So I was kind of um, led down the path when I read a research paper written by some colleagues of mine. And the the quote was, it appears as though owning a possess- owning the possession rather than using it is integral to the hoarder's sense of self and that hoarding may be an extreme form of materialism. And this comment kind of intrigued me because that wasn't how I saw hoarding. It, I, it didn't seem materialistic to me. Um, yeah, that's that's not how I instinctively feel it as. Yeah, instinctively didn't feel it. And I was like, I really want to like dig dig into this. And I did actually find there was virtually zero relationship between hoarding and materialism in my sample. And I think it is a completely different motivation. So when we think of compulsive buying in its purest form, in my mind's eye, I see that montage of a person, you know, flitting in and out of designer shops at a mall, flashing their platinum card, you know. <laughs> buying cashmere sweaters in every colour and, you know, designer handbags and fragrances and, you know, using the concierge service, driving <laughs> off in a BMW, that sort of thing. You know, someone who's using possessions to present person of means, you know, someone with money to burn to the world, you know, people will like me if I have more, better yeah. stuff. And compulsive buying is strongly associated with materialism, but hoarding is not. And I think the combination of compulsive buying and hoarding is not that typical person out in the shopping mall buying brand name stuff. Um, I think the underlying hoarding beliefs and values of that responsibility for the future of items, that abhorrence of wastefulness um, in resources and money mean that dollar stores and kind of charity shops are where most people with hoarding are actually shopping. Um, So in the hoarding literature, they make this distinction. So you've got compulsive buying that we've just talked about um, or or shopping as such, and then compulsive acquiring, which is usually of free items. Um, So there's a couple of motivations for that, depending on the type of items and context. The first one, you know, you've got your curb crawling on hard rubbish day or rescuing items from rubbish. I think that's motivated by that responsibility and those scrupulous beliefs. This is still good. 
you know, yeah. Sally, Joe, Billy, someone could use that or um, people are so wasteful. Um, I could glue the leg back on and it'll be perfectly good. You will never glue the leg back on. You will never glue the leg back on, people. You will not. You Let won't. it go. <laughs> and then the second one is kind of picking up free promotional items, you know, that are essentially useful. Like I heard a story of someone going to exhibitions or trade shows and taking as many of the free pens or notepads or key rings or whatever as they could. Yeah. Um, or, you know, taking millions of source sachets from the golden arches or the other one that lots and lots of people do is picking up free pamphlets, free information pamphlets. I used and then to do that so much. I don't now, but I I used to really pick up every leaflet I could find. And I I never looked at them again. I never, but yeah. Yeah, exactly. You ne- never use those freebie pens or any of that stuff or the sachets. They just sit there or you never read the pamphlets. Um, I think this could, in a way, kind of be close to, kleptomania almost like an impulse control issue like almost a safe or legitimate form of kleptomania if you like because they're free right it's not stealing yeah but it's still that kind of impulse thing of i've got to have it because it's there yeah um and the third type is taking other people's cast-offs you know that's similar isn't it um similar to that curb crawling thing um and again i think my gut tells me that this is about fear of uncertainty like the inability to kind of tolerate that uncertainty, which shows up often um, in the hoarding literature, um, doing everything we can to make sure we're never without or at a loss or seeking something. And there's also a little bit of pl- pleasure to be had in the moment as well, which we can't forget. So the high of feeling special for getting such a great bargain or treasure um, and beating other people to the punch um, I don't know if you have those kinds of Boxing Day sales that we have in Australia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe it's the Black Friday sale, whatever. In America, yeah. Although Black Friday has taken over here as well now. Yeah, us too, us too. But that whole idea of getting there first, yeah. you know, pushing all the people aside. doesn't matter whether you need that 85-inch yeah. television. You're going to get there first. You're going to win. Um, and there's also a bit of a high in, in feeling heroic or virtuous for saving something that's bound for the tip. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I know a lot of people say that to me a lot, you know, oh, but I saved it. You know, yeah. this is great. Um, ownership, reinforcing who you are, like James Clear, like the podcast from last week that you did, it's a vote towards the person you want to be. Um, and you're the haver, not the have not, you know, you've got it. So you feel good about that. Um, so those are, that's really the difference I think between the shopping, um, combined with hoarding is that you're more, um, in line with those kind of beliefs and values of responsibility and not wanting to be wasteful, saving money, all of those kinds of things. Um, whereas someone who has a pure kind of compulsive compulsive buying disorder, very materialistic, looking to present themselves as a person um, who has the money that, you know, they can be whoever they want to be. Quite different, I feel. I do need to point out that curb crawling obviously has a different meaning in Australia to the UK and Jan is not talking about seeking sex workers. Um, Oh, okay. As far as I know. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, curb crawling. Okay, good. 
Good. Maybe I made that up. Maybe I used that in hoarding. Uh... I mean, it's it does describe what you're doing, but here it overwhelmingly <laughs> means going oh, after okay. street sex workers. Yes. Okay. Well, we won't. It's not that. It's Everybody, not that. it's not that. So if you read anything about compulsive acquiring, the words dopamine hit come up again and again and again. What is dopamine and how does it impact acquiring? Ah, yes, dopamine, the neurotransmitter. It's like a chemical messenger that allows conversations to happen between nerve cells in the brain, um, between nerve cells, and then as well as conversations between the brain and your body. So it does a lot of stuff, uh, all sorts of different things. But with respect to acquiring, it kind of plays an important role in the rewards and motivation system in your brain. So we said it before when we talked about motivation and habits, humans seek pleasure and avoid pain. So that's kind of hardwired. Um, And evolutionarily, the reward system is kind of designed to give you a little prize for doing things that you need to survive, eat, drink, reproduce, compete. So we seek out behaviours that release the largest dopamine hit we can. We feel so good, we do it again, and soon it becomes a habit. So when I thought about this, I kind of sat back and went, well, acquiring is all about survival in our brain. And you think think it through, isn't it? Yeah. Buying, hunting, gathering, finding a mate, having access to more resources makes us more likely to pass on our genes. You know, possessions help us survive. So give us nourishment, make us attractive to a partner, allow us to beat out the competition in, you know, whatever arena we're competing in. So hoarding kind of fundamentally reflects that natural and adaptive behaviour, which is kind of an urge to balance availability of key resources over time and space. So that's what's happening with our dopamine hit. We're really, it's a survival mechanism in the brain. And that's why it's so hard to break <laughs> because it's it's hardwired in there. You know, it's like food, water, it's all that stuff. Um, you can't stop going to the shops to buy things unless, I don't know, unless you've got someone who can do that shopping for you. But, yeah, it's that's what dopamine's all about and it feels pretty good. That little prize is great, you know, and it makes you feel focused and alert and really, you know, feel like you you feel pretty good about yourself. And that, again, is something that although it, it can hit and give you a really nice kind of high, it will drop off pretty quickly and you'll be looking for the next hit. Yeah, which I guess is why there are people who buy something and get the hit and then never open their shopping bag when they get home or never unpack the Amazon box because they got the hit of the buying, but they're not that interested in in what they bought. That's right. And also when it comes home, it goes on the pile with all the other things that they've bought and not opening it means not coming to terms or facing up to what's going on. Um, and we must remember also that those of us who have any kind of you know, mood disorders like um, bipolar disorder or, um, you know, that whole manic phase, that is when people really struggle. And I have had clients who've had um, bipolar disorder and the aftermath of that 
is really, really hard to deal with because they're in that dipped into that depression then and it's not wanting to deal with it um, and then back up into a manic phase, you know, a few months later and they're buying more things and piling those things up. So that can be very, very difficult. Yeah, yeah. So what we're going to do in this episode is look at some of the reasons behind why hoarders acquire. And then in a month's time, in Jan's next episode, we're going to look at some of what you can do about it. But today is all about why we do it. So I have put together a list of some of the common reasons. Some of the some of these I absolutely identify with. Some of them <laughs> I don't particularly but I know from talking to others or reading or researching that, that they're quite common. Mm. So the first one is definitely one of mine, and that is bargains or freebies. These days I actively avoid charity shops and pound shops, which is like like the dollar store, discount stores, all of that. I have to I have to keep away because I, I feel like I almost have no control if I'm in them. So what is it about bargains or freebies that are so tempting to hoarders? Yeah, look, I, it's so interesting because, like, we're all kind of the same. Yeah. You know, we all see a bargain and our eyes light up with dollar signs. You know, and we talked a little bit before about that evidence of some impulse control issues for those who hoard and that uncertainty plays a part in that and it actually predicts compulsive acquiring of free things so that not knowing what might happen in the future is is possibly that motivator there it's tempting because it's easier to decide to buy something if it's only a few dollars or a few cents you know the opportunity costs are so low um added to that that intolerance of uncertainty and it's just likely to lead you to more purchases so you feel more certain and more secure. So I can see definitely that that's something that I would do if I saw something, you know, that I knew I needed or might need and it was super, super cheap. Yeah, I just possibly wouldn't go to the extremes. So that is where it is. It's it's kind of a natural thing to do, but it's how extreme do you go? Uh, is it ten bottles of shampoo? Is it two? Um, I think that's the that's the hardest thing. But bargains and freebies, I definitely have to think twice before you know if I pick it up and then I go, oh, hang on a minute, <laughs> I picked something up like this before and I just had to donate it or I just had to throw it out or whatever. So. It's being able to <laughs> hit that where where that trigger happens and you feel that impulse control going, get all the stuff. We need to kind of have something that stops us from um, continuing on with that behaviour. That's brought up two things for me. One is that I think a lot, if not all of these reasons, are common to a lot of people but kind of exaggerated with people who hold. The other is more than once thankfully a long time ago but definitely more than once I've seen something that was so cheap that I didn't need that I knew I didn't need but I have felt a responsibility to buy it and donate it to a charity shop oh wow I know I had completely forgotten that so you were just speaking then and like it's my civil responsibility to let a charity shop benefit from this item that's 
Wow. That's above and beyond. That might, we might, yeah, that might come up when we talk about some of these other reasons. That might be a really good example. Ah, I'll keep that one on the back burner for a minute. Mm. (laughs) So the next one is other people offloading their stuff. As people who hoard, we quite often feel a responsibility to the items we own in a way that's stronger than you'd find in people who don't hoard. So if somebody else is giving their things away, could it be that that sense of responsibility extends to their stuff as well? Yeah, definitely. Yep, definitely. Because we don't only feel responsible for that stuff of ours. Other people's stuff should be, you know, we do this shooting stuff, should be used and we will be the ones to be the heroes. You know, we will be the ones. And I think that's some of what you're talking about there, this is so cheap. I know someone, you know, who doesn't yeah. have much money. It, it, it hooks into that kind of responsibility too. I will be the one who will give it um, new life or I will be the one who will pass it on to a person who will use it. It's a lot of responsibility though when it's not only your stuff, it's a lot of other people's stuff and you've got a lot of your own to deal with. So that's hard to that's going to make things difficult if you're continually picking up other people's offcasts. Um, and especially mm. if you're the kind of person who will pick it up with the full intention of giving it away, but you're the kind of person who struggles to give things away, um, it may well stay in your house. Yeah, exactly. The next one is identity. Now, There's definitely a phenomenon in society that we buy stuff to affirm our identities. We might love a sports team and we want to wear their shirts or put their sticker on our car. If we're gay, we want all the rainbow things. If we love a particular band, we want their merch. But for hoarders, I would say this can go much further. I had years ago, I watched, I'm quite embarrassed to tell this story, but it's relevant. I watched a documentary about elephants and I realised that elephants are brilliant. They're really fascinating. They're really clever. They're really all these things. And I went out and I bought a load of stuff with elephants on, right? There was no need for this. But do you know what? I, it was so, it was such, you know, when you have a moment of clarity, it was such a ridiculous thing to do that I had a moment of clarity and went, this is ridiculous. And I feel like I've not done that since, or certainly not to that degree. If I have a really strong aspect of my identity, I might well buy, you know, things that relate to that. But the kind of, oh, I have a new interest, I will buy all of the things seems Mm. to have eased. But is it it some kind of of seeking validation or an sense of identity kind of doubting that? Or how does that work? Oh, you're so intuitive, my love, because hoarders and other people who have obsessive, compulsive and related disorders are less clear about their identity. They have this sort of self-worth ambivalence. So, you know, doubting if people like you, feeling like you're full of contradictions, having mixed feelings about your self-worth, all of that stuff, which is what you're saying, that doubting of your sense of identity is what you're trying to make sense of. Um, 
and being constantly concerned about whether, you know, you're a decent person or a good or a bad person. This is really common in um, many OCD type disorders. This is moral ambivalence. Um, and you might also be quite publicly self-conscious. This is another kind of um, element of of self-ambivalence, they call it, uh, worrying about how you come across to others, whether you look your best, how people are perceiving you. I mean, a lot of us do this, yeah. um, but this is at, a, at a, probably a different level and how you can improve yourself um, are kind of those constant preoccupations. And acquiring and accumulating items might be an attempt to kind of pump up our certainty about our self-worth and kind of give us a sense of security. So the elephants there is... I know a lot about elephants. Elephants. I know how amazing and smart they are. This is kind of, you know, this is giving me that security that I, I'm, I, I have that knowledge, and it's a representation of that. And there's also this kind of discrepancy between how individuals see themselves and how they'd like to be. This is really common in hoarding. So that leads to that kind of emotional discomfort. Um, that is compensated for through acquiring stuff. You know, this could be what's happening with you buying all the things. Like, I want to be a true Man U fan or Geelong Football Club fan. If I buy all the gear, then I'll be telling the world that I'm really committed, you know, I'm dyed in the wool supporter. Um, and that self-consciousness of what others think of us means we need to show and not tell them who we are. Because we're not, you know, we're not able to kind of say that. And like a lot of these things, it's based on some validity. If you have just moved to a new town and you want to make friends and you're wearing a manu shirt and you see another person wearing a manu shirt, that's the kind of beginning of a conversation. Or if you're gay and you don't know many people and you're wearing a rainbow badge you might kind of see someone else wearing a rainbow badge and, you know, so there's some validity in it, but it's as with many things that we talk about, it's just taking it to an extreme, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. And that whole, you know, um, we're talking about the, this is what I want to be and the the gap between who I am and who I want to be. Um, We don't like that kind of, you know, we don't we don't like that um, cognitive dissonance. We want those to be as close as possible as they can. And so, what, sometimes the only thing we can do is, or we feel we can do, or need to do, is buy all the things, and then we will be true, true dyed in the wool. You know, Geelong, go Geelong. <laughs> so another thing that can cause acquiring in people who hoard is things they've lost in the hoard. It's so Mm. common. Sometimes we buy things we know we own, but we just can't find them. Some, I know this isn't just me. Sometimes I will assume something's lost and rebuy without trying to find it because it feels pointless to try and find it. I've even heard of people thinking, I'll probably lose this, so I'll buy two. Um, just anticipating what what's going on with that kind of acquiring 
Mm, so distress intolerance. I loved last week's pod on this. It was <gasps> awesome. Thank you. Everyone hasn't listened to it. You, It's a must, okay? As soon as you've listened to this, go back and listen to that one. Um, this is a really big problem for many, you know, people who suffer from anxiety kind of related uh, mental health issues. We don't want to feel unsure. Uh, or unprepared. Yeah. <laughs> and then you add a dollop of anxiety sensitivity, which goes with this distress intolerance. So they're kind of like a double whammy because you're more, you know, you're more sensitive to anxiety and you're less able to tolerate distress. It's like, a, yeah. you know, it's like a recipe for disaster. So, yeah, it's intolerance of uncertainty as well, as we spoke earlier. Um, and I think a little bit of is a, a little bit of it is about identity. Like I'm the type of person who outwardly has all the things. Right. You know, uh, you might have a very private life, and people see you're very. You always have the right gadgets on hand, um, and also just plain old variety, garden variety risk aversion. You know, people who hold aren't risk takers. They're just in cases. They're there. They yeah. they are not risk takers. I'll probably lose this, you know, Allen key or whatever it might be. I'll get a dozen and I'll put one in every room so I know I can find it when I need it. Um, so it's a kind of soup, <laughs> if you like, of things. Yeah. But it is kind of a soup. And we all have that a little bit, but we often will kind of go, oh, it's okay. It's all right. I can. I I know I can handle it if I if if I lose it yeah. and I don't have it. But it's not being able to say to yourself, I, I I can manage it. And there's a kind of life tip in there, which is if you have a dozen Allen keys, you don't pay particular attention to where you're putting them because you know there's more. Spot on. If you have one Allen key, and it's always on the toilet system then you know where the allen key is and you're less likely to lose it even though you've only got one whereas if you've got a load you just go oh there's another one somewhere it's so hard to keep track of what we've got yeah so if you've got multiples of something it's a nightmare and you are much more likely to lose them because you're much uh you're not so careful with them yeah so it, it is a life lesson i think I get why you would do it, totally get it. And then I also see how it could be a trap. Completely. Definitely a trap. Now, absolutely related to that one is fear of running out of something. You've just um, alluded to that. It's a core theme running through many aspects of hoarding. Gathering endless items to avoid being without them. What makes this fear so powerful and so prevalent among people who hoard? Yeah, so some of it is that intolerance of uncertainty that we talked about, risk aversion, um, perfectionism, of course, we've spoken about that before. I think it's deep kind of in the psyche of hoarders because, you know, previous aversive experience that, experiences that made them feel powerless and out of control, you know, having all the things in the home means they can survive uncertain times right? We've just been through a pandemic. That's reinforcing. Um, It's an aversive experience. Um, And I think this is going to reinforce the need to be prepared for many of us, hoarders or not. 
but definitely hoarders are going to take that as um, in some cases I told you so, in other cases just proof. Um, See, (laughs) I did need that stuff. Exactly. I know in the early days of COVID when you couldn't buy toilet paper and you couldn't buy tinned food, part of me was a bit like, there we go. I was right. (laughs) And, you know, even as I was thinking it, I was going, yeah, but being prepared for a once in a century pandemic isn't really, you know, it's, it's it's not proportionate. I could have done without tin tuna for a few weeks quite safely. <laughs> well, maybe. Uh, who knows? Toilet paper, not so much. I was glad of, of the toilet paper supplies I had in the house. Have you watched that TV show, The Dome? No. Have you ever seen that? No. Uh, so it's a uh, Stephen King series. You know, this this dome lands over a town, oh, um, nice. slices, like it's just kind of, and it goes it's not just a dome. It goes right. It's like a sphere and it goes right. right down into the earth. And, you know, as it came down, cows and stuff were sliced in half. It's bizarre. Anyway, there's a woman in the town who's a hoarder and she is happy. She's the queen <laughs> of the town. The town. She's got all the stuff. She's got the, you know, crates and crates of water, you know, uh, toilet yeah. paper, canned goods, you know, everything. And I was like, oh, yeah, okay. When that giant sphere, <laughs> you'll be ready. When I that giant be, yeah. sphere, band, hey, yeah. well done. All good, all good. <laughs> but, yes, in the unlikely event that doesn't happen, it may be that I'm over-preparing. <laughs> Yeah, and I don't know, you know, over-preparing is something that lots of us do, though. Like, I know I've always been an over-preparer, and I was um, called out on it once when I was working in recruitment. It was like, oh, you're an over-preparer. You know, you want to be too organised, you know, you want to have everything um, prepared. You need to be able to fly, you know, off the, by the seat of your pants more. And I was always like, oh, no, I don't want to do that. Yeah. And that's my risk-averse nature you know, fear of uncertainty, wanting to know I've got it all written down. I've double-checked my briefcase and all of that kind of my folio. I know everything's there. But over-preparing, again, can become... becomes unwieldy, doesn't it? It's... in Jan sends out a weekly email, which I recommend all the time, and I am recommending now go to her website and sign up for it. Link in the show notes. And the one that came... It was yesterday because we're recording on Monday, but it was um, by the time this goes out on Friday, it will be last Sunday's email was about needing too much information um, in hoarding. And and basically, I replied to this email to Jan and said, (laughs) yeah, this absolutely makes sense to me. And I thought about a recent I'd needed well, it I, I, turns out I didn't need surprise, surprise, but I thought I needed um, just a, a charger, a phone charger. And I had, I could either order online or I could go to the supermarket and get whatever they had. And I was really torn because I thought if I go to the supermarket, there won't be like reviews. So I won't know if I'm getting a good one or a bad one. And that was on the one hand a bit scary but on the other hand a massive relief that I could 
because it was only going to cost me £10. This wasn't a big, you know, I wasn't buying a washing machine or a house or a car, you know, this was a basic purchase. And I, so I bought it from the, from the supermarket and just going, do you know what? I'm sure it will be fine. If it isn't, you know, then it's not the end of the world. And it was, it felt both risky and a relief to not trawl through 800 reviews to see what Jim from Surrey thought of his phone charger when he bought it. And um, I hadn't really framed it in that way until I read your email. It's really interesting. <laughs> I think that is so funny um, because I think mo- a lot of us sit with that. Oh, it's risky, but it's easier. You know, yeah. we th- that ambivalence, we sit quite comfortably within that. Um, but some of us just don't. Yeah. It's the whole, uh, my husband and I, Blair, shout out, mm-hmm. um, maximizer versus satisficer, which is how you decide. Maximizers want to know every piece of information possible. They will gather every, you know, pro and con lists. They'll yeah. do all of that. The satisficer kind of goes, I've got these uh, priorities for the, for the thing I'm buying. If it ticks, you know, four or five. Yeah. That's the one. Yeah. I'm just, yeah, I'm not going to muck enough. around. Yeah. Good enough, you know, and that's where we kind of get ourselves tied up. Um, yeah. And into knots, basically, trying to get all that information so that we can make a decision because we're just concerned where we might make a mistake. But as you say, ah, oh, look, it cost me 10 pounds, whatever, you know. Yeah. Um, but it is hard to to change that mindset because it's yeah. so deeply ingrained. And of course, there are times when checking reviews is the absolutely sensible thing to do. Um, I was having, I was doing some sorting in the kitchen and I've got as far as the shelves with cookbooks on them. And Woo-hoo! I know, and I am so torn because I love cookbooks, but I don't use a recipe that isn't reviewed. (laughs) I don't want to waste an hour of my life on something that everybody else thinks is too salty. If everybody says it's too salty, I'll include less, you know. And so I haven't used a cookbook in a really long time, and yet they're beautiful and gorgeous and I like having them so that's my current dilemma because yes. I think there are times I I have limited energy I don't want to waste energy cooking something that 90% of people cooked and hated um, and so there are times when reviews are great and inform our mm. lives but there are times that absolutely unwieldy and, and not just reviews of course you know reading articles about them comparing prices on 800 website you know like <sighs> To to save £2.50. Every tab, you know, every tab yes. you've ever written anything about that yeah. product, you've got yeah. the tab open. Yep. I'm cross-referencing now. Exactly. <laughs> oh, my God. Exactly. Seriously? Is it really going to be that much, you know, is that really going to impact whether I get the right right one or not? Who says it's right? And if it's a phone charger, listeners, you probably do have several. But if you do need to buy one, it doesn't matter what Jim and sorry thinks. Phone chargers no. will charge your phone. Some for longer, some faster, but essentially you need something to charge your phone and it will it will do the job. Even <laughs> if it's the one from Tesco without reading a single review. <laughs> 
So you promise? You promise? Promise. (laughs) It will be all right. But, you know, (laughs) buying a house, check what people in the area think. Good idea. Mm. I'll be back in a sec. Hey, collectors. This is Rachel CV, host of the Hordganize podcast. My podcast is chock full of tips and tricks on how to overcome compulsive hoarding disorder and chronic disorganization. I'd love for you to tune in so that you can learn about why you save things and how to help yourself or how to help a family member or friend who struggles with clutter. You can find me at hoardgoodnyes.com or download my podcast on any of your favorite podcast apps. So other reasons that people acquire things, one that comes up a lot, and you referred to this when we were talking in your kind of in one of the earlier sections about managing strong emotions. If somebody's really overwhelmed by emotions, they might get drunk, they might go for a run, they might have a big cry. What makes (laughs) some people manage this by acquiring stuff? And how does acquiring stuff help us feel like we're managing this yeah so this is kind of that dopamine reward system at play so if it successfully made you feel good in the past which it probably has you'll try it again so it's that good um it's that coping mechanism it's also um you know acquiring acquiring stuff is a way to escape the reality of home you know you've got these overwhelming feelings about everything that's going wrong you know we can forget about that chaos behind the door and kind of bask in the perfectness of you know beautifully merchandised stores and it's kind of like a magical space you almost forget about everything that's happening elsewhere Um, and I don't know about you I was thinking about this today but I often think inanimate objects are yummy or delicious you know like be the color or the texture or whatever And I think it's that kind of drive to survive thing, like the sight of kind of gem-coloured cashmere or whatever. It sets that dopamine rushing and I feel that I'll die if I don't possess that thing. Like I'll feel kind of like a flutter, like, oh, I need that. I must have that, Um, which is totally human. We all feel it just about kind of different things. So I think the kind of machine of capitalism is promising us that it can manage our emotions because that is what it plays on, you know, it pushes those buttons and says it can make all of these things happen. So I think that's why we think it will work because that's what every billboard and every TV show and everything is telling us. It's not referred to as retail therapy for no reason. Exactly. That is exactly right. It is not called retail therapy for nothing. It is definitely something people think will make them feel super good. And it will in the moment. Yes, it will. That's And so, again, it proves we go, oh, yeah, that does feel good. It reinforces what is that, it? that this helps. When yeah, mm. There was an interesting conversation on Twitter a few days ago, which if I can find it again, I will link to, um, where... A woman who works with people who hoard replied to one of my tweets and said that she finds that one of the reasons her clients might spend their days going around charity shops and discount shops is just 
so they get time out of being in their house. It's something, it's a, it's an excuse to not be at home. And somebody mm. else, somebody replied and she agreed with that and replied and said, yep, yeah, that's, I do it. And she said, and I also sit in the car when I get home for ages rather than go in. And I said, oh, I sit in the car for ages before I go in as well. I, but I thought that was because I work from home and coming back in meant going back to work. But I am wondering now if there's an element of that as well. Mm, yeah, very, very likely. You know, it's just that whole prepa- almost preparing yourself to go yeah. in. Yeah. <laughs> you know, stealing yourself for the, the fight of when you go in because you know it's not going to be what, you know, the, the, that cavern between how you want it to be and how it is is so wide that you think, oh, maybe I'll just sit here in the car for a little bit. Yeah. I mean, other people also go to charity shops and stuff for a bit of social interaction. Yeah. We know that happens too, you know, feeling like you're someone because they know your name, they know, you know, what you like, all of those sorts of things. And that's the same for compulsive buying, you know, people knowing your name when you go into a, you know, Tiffany's or whatever, that makes you feel pretty good about yourself and they know that. And, of course, the thing about charity shops is every purchase you make goes to a good cause so you're literally doing a good thing for the world every time you buy something and it's, I, I, you know, I know it's it's that's I mean that's great it's why they exist but it is a real dilemma if you're like yeah. should I shouldn't I and then you go but this will help children with cancer if I buy it how can you say exactly. no to that I know. And it's that moral kind of compass. You're like, this is what, this is the type of person I am. This is a vote for me being a good person. Yeah. I am making a vote for me being a good person. It's just bang. And it's very easy to just stop there and not kind of continue on and go, okay, well, this is going to kind of come into my house and then I'm going to have to sort through it. And chances are, it's just going to go back again into that charity shop. And that's fine because then they'll resell it. <laughs> but maybe I could just donate the money rather than buy the thing and save everybody <laughs> the <Yeah>. trouble. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's <laughs> very hard. Now, related to managing strong emotions, but slightly different, I think, is another reason people might acquire is feeling insecure or overcompensating. I've talked in a previous episode about how I had a big work event that I was really anxious about and I manifested that anxiety by buying clothes, going, if I can only wear exactly the right thing, then it's going to go really, really well. Um, I'll make a good impression. People will take me seriously. Why do we think sometimes that buying or acquiring or gathering stuff is the answer to feeling insecure. It's about that we perceive we lack something. You know, you say some, sometimes some of us uh, who have trouble ba- with boundaries and things and knowing when enough is enough and we overcompensate. So we kind of, we want to feel secure. We overcompensate by buying too many things, but we go even further than that because, you know, we just do where yeah. that's who we are. And marketers know how to exploit it. 
I can't say that strongly enough. They know yeah. you're insecure. They know, and that's what clothes are like. Clothing is the worst possible market for that. Yeah. Um, they know how to picket those things that, you know, you don't like about yourself. Um, and it's a little bit, in your case, with the work event and clothes and all, it will go well. It will go well if I wear the right outfit. It's that magical thinking again yeah. that something external to yourself can fix the internal. Yeah. Um, and it's that externalizing of if I look good on the outside, then that will make me feel good on the inside. And I'm not saying that's wrong because I do feel that, you know, clothes can be a bit of an armor sometimes. They can really help you feel, you know, good about yourself. And that's really, really important. Had I turned up to that event in jeans and a T-shirt, that would have undermined my professional, you know, exactly. ap- um, appearance. So, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And that's exactly what I was thinking when I when I was looking at that question. I kind of went, yeah, you're right. If you, you know, if you didn't make any effort. Yeah. Yes, you're right. It would have undermined your kind of credibility in that situation. Um, whether you needed, yeah, five outfits, you know. Exactly. Two changes, you know, like a, a Lady Gaga concert. <laughs> I don't know. But, hey, maybe, may, maybe that's exactly what you needed. We just, you know, we never know. But it's that we perceive we lack, we try to fill it, and we're not quite sure how much we need, so we overcompensate. We keep going and going. It's like, oh, my god! I know so many people, not hoarders, who really fall into the trap of ordering clothes online, getting something in two or three sizes so they can try them and return them and never return never the ones that don't fit. Um, and that's people who don't hoard. They're just, you know, um, it's just that returning stuff is a hassle. Yep, it's a hassle. And I had a client uh, had so, a client send me a note the other day saying, I'm going to be the person at my estate sale that everybody loves. They're going to come in and go, look, it's still got the tags on. Yeah. And I just burst out laughing yeah. when I read that email because that's right. It is so annoying to return things. And I've got, I've got moved right away from ordering things online clothing-wise now because I just know that it's fraught. And you will end up with keeping – you will end up you keeping will. all of that yeah. stuff. Yeah. And it will sit there and it will make you feel guilty because it's money that you can't spend on other things. Yeah. Yeah. Now, another reason I identified because I'd recently done it – um, was indecision. I needed. I did need. In this case, I needed a pencil case. I because I had been doing. I had been following my own advice and putting like with like, and which I did a whole episode on. It's a really good way, not just of getting organised, but of convincing your brain that you have plenty of something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that if all of your tin openers are together you get a mental image next time you go, do I need a tin opener? And you can visualize the 12 tin openers you've already got and and it reassures you. So it's a really good thing to do. And I had been doing that and I had so many pens. I have a bit of a stationary thing Um, and I had (laughs) so many pens and I put a guilty. (laughs) Me too. And and you go, oh, it's only small. It doesn't take up any space. It'll be fine. But I put like I put them in like pots around the house. And anyway, so I still had a number of pens that needed a home. 
So I needed a pencil case and I, I pencil cases aren't the kind of thing I already had. So safe purchase, you'd think. But I couldn't decide between the cute avocado pencil case or the cute strawberry pencil case. And rather than make a decision, I bought the avocado pencil case and the strawberry pencil case, which is ridiculous. Um, what is going on when that happens? <laughs> yes, I love it. So <laughs> my recent newsletter when I was talking about too much information, you know, we want to make the best, most perfect decision and we end up getting overwhelmed by all the pros and the cons. I'm sure you were sitting there going, oh, the green, the avocado, yeah, that'll go with this handbag, but that one won't. You know, you think up all this stuff. Yeah. Um. I'm often tempted to just walk out and not buy anything because <laughs> I get so yeah. I'm like, oh, my God. But others will buy all of the options yeah. to avoid, you know, feeling uncertain about that decision and just going, oh, God, I'll just get everything. So it's just it's, it's us needing to feel confident in our decisions and be devoid of uncertainty, which is impossible because there's always uncertainty in everything. And that's where it gets really hard. You know, the distress intolerance fits in, you know, it's, it's kind of like a, kind of like, I don't know, Lego almost. Like they kind of fit yeah. into one another and they and they make everything more difficult. So um, I think that's what's happening there. It's a bunch of all this stuff, but indecision is one of those things that kind of takes everything that we've talked about. <laughs> and everything is kind of plugged into that and makes it harder to make the decision. The, it's interesting. I also sometimes end up buying nothing. I've recently been trying mm. to re reintroduce yogurt into my life. I couldn't eat, ah. I haven't been able to eat yogurt for years because the last serious diet I did, there was oh. one brand of yogurt that you could eat as much of as you wanted. And so I ate so much of this yogurt that as soon as I stopped the diet, I couldn't stand it anymore. And I've not been able to eat yogurt since. And I thought recently, okay, come on, you know, try some yogurt, not that brand. I'll never eat that brand again. But, um, but then I was in the supermarket and there were hundreds of yogurts, not just different flavors. It's different types of, you know, there's Greek yogurt and there's this and there's low fat and there's, you know, there's with probiotics and and I was just going I don't I don't know what to do and I didn't buy yogurt but what I did do was ask some friends and go just recommend me a really nice yogurt and yeah so, and I'll just go for that one exactly. yogurt I'm not gonna I'm not gonna look at anything else that's the blinkers isn't yeah. it because there's too much choice yeah yeah too much choice and like us we're like oh god no I need and, and we want to rely on someone else's advice because we know that we'll stand there at that section and just stare yeah. and go, oh my god and then never buy it yeah supermarkets are designed to do that like you can't buy a tin of beans without choosing from 10 types of tins of beans and it's yogurts it seems are a particularly bad example mm. but everything in there where you know when there aren't shortages and when it's not a pandemic you know there's <laughs> too much which is why I think that's part of why we stick with certain brands it's not mm. especially because we're that loyal it's because it saves making a decision every time 
Exactly. You can speed through that shopping aisle much, much quicker because you know that that's the brand you always buy. And, you know, to get you to shift brands, that takes quite a lot, unless you're purely buying on price, which is something some people do too. Like that can be kind of your rules, you know, you have, yeah, parameters. Yeah, with certain things, it's just whichever's the cheapest I will get of that. This, you know, tuna, I, I don't know why I'm obsessed with tuna today. Tuna, I get this brand. But if it's rice, then whatever's on offer, you know. Um, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But brand loyalty, I think you're right. I think some of it is, you know, people are stalwart, whatever's, you know, Heinz or whatever the brand is. But others are just, oh, well, I always get Heinz because I always get Heinz. <laughs> That's it. Exactly. Exactly. No real reason. I have a very particular peanut butter that I love. I'm loyal to that brand because I've tried a lot of peanut butter and it's the best. But yeah, other things, I'm not bothered. And so so the easiest way to make a decision is what's discounted or what's the cheapest. Yeah. So another reason people might, people, I say as if I don't do this, (laughs) might um, acquire is as a misguided attempt at decluttering. This is something I'm really trying to curb in myself. We might buy storage items, thinking that that's the answer. That I know we've talked before about for a long time, I thought that what I had was an organisation problem, not a volume problem. And if I could just get the right shelves and the right boxes and the right... Everything. Yeah, exactly. It's there is some logic there, but like with all of these things, it's skewed. How does it get so distorted? It's a very interesting one. This whole containerizing, you know, <laughs> because corralling stuff makes us feel kind of more con- in control of a situation, yeah. right? You know, everything's in a box or a container with a lid on it and things suddenly kind of seem calmer. And there's like, oh, that's what I need. I need everything to be in a box and then yeah. it will be in a box and I can pile the boxes up and then I, you know, and it just makes us feel more together. Like we're it does. <laughs> contained. It does. And I totally get that. I mean, my mum's always been a, you know, she's a corraler from way back, you know, keeping shoe boxes and keeping this yeah. and that. And she's never been a hoarder, but she does have a lot of stuff. And that is why I think we really like it and we think that that's the place to start. It's kind of that almost top-down approach rather than the bottom-up approach, yeah. I guess. Um, but also when you're in those container or organizing sections I don't know just does something to us you know I think we want to feel accomplished and good at something you know and being disorganized makes a lot of us feel bad you know oh I can't even get my life I can't even get my sock drawer together or whatever you know I think we feel shame like you know it's not guilt it's shame you know I'm a bad person and then marketing uses that to sell us you know this stuff is good this is this will fix the problem and we fall for it. So it's a combination. I think it is that putting things in boxes makes us feel in control. And that seems like a good place to start. <laughs> and if if I'm the kind of person 
who buys organizing tools that I'm the kind of person it's a vote for me Mm. as an organized person but it's not it's spoiling your ballot or something isn't it it's (laughs) it is almost spoiling your ballot I reckon I think it's it's a donkey in the box in the wrong the tick in the wrong box Exactly, because it's like, oh, now I've got a big pile of storage containers and all of this stuff. And the storage like, containers okay. aren't perfectly right. <laughs> so actually you need a slightly bigger one or a slightly bigger longer one. one. And you need one with a <laughs> lid, and the one you bought last time doesn't have a lid. And and so it's not – it's it, they're never right. No, and that's why it's always a, um, the whole sort the stuff first – and then organize what's the left. Organize <laughs> what's left because it's not an organizing problem. It's a stuff problem. It's a volume problem. And that is really hard to, especially when you go out of the house and you're in this sparkling, you know, yeah. the lights of the mall and everything seems so wonderful. It's like, oh, yeah. wow, this is what I need. Um, this will make everything better. Do you know what somebody said to me, and it is so true, they said when you get kind of as far as your shelves and cupboards and wardrobe, you can safely clear everything out of those because you haven't been able to access them for several years, so you clearly don't know what's in them. And it made it that resonated with me. I was like, it's true. I don't use my actual shelves and cupboards because they're full of stuff that I haven't been able to access and so I haven't used and, and I seem to be doing all right without. Exactly. And then there's the other, then I've had other clients where nothing is in the cupboards right, and shelves. Yeah, That's another thing, you know, I have to have it inside. It has to be out of the cupboard. And then you finally reach the cupboard and there's nothing hanging in there or nothing on the shelves. It's all empty. So that's really interesting as well. There can be an element, I think, with that of there's all kinds of things about why we might need to keep things in sight. I might forget about it or, I'm, you know, but I think there can be also like with a new notebook. You're like, I don't want to spoil this. I don't. <laughs> what if I get something wrong on the first page? And so it can also be like, what if I put things on the shelves and I don't get it quite right? without realizing that you can move them again <laughs> yeah it has to be done right the first time yeah. it's that you know I have to do it right the first time because that means I'm a good person if I've done it right the first time which is silly I mean it's just not true but it's how we think completely and since I did the CBT and I have so embraced the whole treat everything as an experiment thing mm. um I have, I am proving to myself weekly that no amount of planning something out in my brain is a match for trying something, then adapting, then trying, then adapting, then trying, then adapting. Totally. That's awesome. Yeah. I didn't realize how much I felt I needed to have it perfect in my brain and then go and do it perfectly. When what you need to do, that doesn't work. That's not how yeah. the world works. And what does work is doing a bit and saying, you know, that that's kind of yeah. helping. But if if this bag was nearer to there, that might be better. Okay, so do that. And then, okay, that's definitely improved that. But what I need now is, and that's 
how I'm making progress. Exactly. And I think that some of us do that kind of intuitively, you know, yeah. like because yeah. we've been doing it for so long, yeah. it kind of, that's how we do yeah. it. But that was what struck me when I came to working with people who really, really struggled and, and hadn't done a lot of yeah. discarding or organising, that, that they just, there was no map in their yeah. brain for that, that whole experiment and do this and that. Whereas that was my whole kind of way of being, you know, and even now I'll do something and I'll go, how come I never thought to do that before? Yeah. Turn that box on that angle. What, how come I never thought, oh, that's brilliant now. Everything's amazing now, you know, and I just do that all the time, but I don't think about it. Yeah. Whereas I have absolutely have to, I've had to teach myself and it's quite conscious. I have to go, right, okay, that's nearly working, but um, mm. yeah, I have to go through that process. But it is, I mean, life changing. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. Exactly. Oh, that's genius. That's very good. So, another again, we've we've referenced this a couple of times, but another mm. reason people buy things, and it's important to point this one out, is because marketing is powerful. We have to take responsibility for our own behaviours, but capitalism exists. We live in it, and it persuades us to buy, buy, buy. It's very good at it oh yeah oh yeah and it's lucrative you know marketing not only selling a product but yeah <laughs> helping people sell products is money making you know and they don't sell the products do they they sell emotions hope opportunity magic you know it, and it's how the products make you feel or say they will make you feel um you know apple does this really well i mean it has done in the past anyway i'm not sure if they've still doing as well but the way the iPhone, you know, feels in your hand, you know, and getting you to touch objects is a really big thing because then you buy into it and it becomes part of your, you know, kind of identity. And now they use scent and music and lighting and all those things to manipulate your senses to get you to buy. Um, and the other thing which I think, you know, I fall for it every time. I find it hilarious. But pricing, you know, $97 versus $99 versus $100. You know, I'm going to buy something ending in a seven because, you know, it's better than nine and it's better than two zeros. And it just registers as better value for money to me. But really, if I don't need the $97 thing, it's not, (laughs) you know. There's a book. Called, I think it's just called Persuasion. I will oh. find it and link to it in the show notes. And it's about the psychology of persuasion. And mm. every marketer has read it and every marketer uses it. And it is worth reading just so you yes. become aware of some of what they're doing. And you can look at something and say, okay, what they're doing there is called the scarcity principle. And they're making us feel like if there's a countdown and we can only buy it for the next 12 (laughs) hours, you know, we have to get it now. Or, okay, that's the this principle, that's the that principle. Robert Cialdini, he's the author. Yeah. Um, So it's called Influence, the Psychology of Persuasion. And he is the guy who did all the foot in the door technique and all of that stuff that you learn at university about sales. 
um, all of the things that are bad. <laughs> yeah, a lot of it is starting to be questioned in, t- in ethical terms. And that's a very interesting conversation to watch because it's something I've been quite uncomfortable about for a while. Mm, but yes, for anyone who doesn't live in the world of marketing and sales, read it. Because once mm. you become aware of what they're doing to you, you can separate yourself, I find, a bit better from it and go, I see what they're doing here and I'm not going to fall for it. Exactly. And that is, you just need to be armed with that information yeah. when you walk into those malls because the the bombarding of your senses with all of that, all of that sensuous yeah. stuff does weaken your resolve, does yeah. weaken everybody's does, resolve. Yeah. And so I guess there's something in this about acknowledging that this is a big pressure on all of us every time we put the TV on, every ad we see in the street, every ad we see on Instagram. Sometimes, I like I know I'm really suggestible when I'm hungry. When I'm hungry and I'm trying to mm. choose off a menu... Whatever someone else wants, like, oh, that sounds amazing. And then someone else says what they want, like, oh, that sounds amazing. And But I'm aware that I'm really suggestible when I'm hungry. So I have techniques that I use, which is mainly to stop myself agonizing over a menu. I read down until I see something that looks nice and then stop reading. And that's that. I don't read the rest of the menu. Ah, yes. Good tactic. And that's... It saves me agonizing. And so that works for me in that circumstance. But if you know you're really susceptible to the something he talks about called social proof, which is Mm. why every time, you know, you're on a sales page, it will say, join our 30,000 happy customers. Or it's about basically say, or, you know, seeing positive reviews or testimonials. They call them in marketing where somebody says, I did this course and now my life has changed and I'm a millionaire and it's basically saying to you other people really love this and so you will too and so say you're really susceptible to social proof once you become aware of that you can start to to address it but until you know the messages that are coming and why they're coming it's harder to address I would say and also with social proof, if you know how they go about getting that social proof, um, that can be tricky as well because they've probably been given a free course or something if you say nice stuff about us or whatever. And I've had quite a few clients who said to me, oh, well, all these people have done this course and they said it was great, so there must be something in it. Um, and I'm thinking, well, I know what the tactic is. Um, And the other part about it is, too, you know, the ethics of it. When you're a counsellor or a psychologist, I mean, you can't advertise that your your services will fix someone. Absolutely, yeah. and And you're not likely to have social proof on your website because that's not ethically yeah you know that's not something we we're we're even allowed to do ethically but people don't know that so they think they see someone who's a coach or someone who's a you know uh, I don't know some sort of religious guru or whatever and they have all this social proof and they look at someone like me and say oh she hasn't got no one's written anything about her 
obviously she doesn't know what she's doing. <laughs> it's, it, it, it makes it's not the same. Um, if you want to see every yeah. aspect of persuasion in action, go have a look at five life coach websites and you'll see them all mm. on most of them. Um, same yeah. with what is called information products. So, you know, eBooks and that kind of thing. Once you go beyond Amazon and more into, you know, things you might buy privately, so many of those are sold in this way because this is what marketers have been taught and, and it is effective. I mean, that's mm. the thing. Thankfully. Not ethical, but effective. Yeah. <laughs> Thankfully, there are people starting to question it. And, and I like that. Mm. So a couple of final reasons that are a bit external um, or, well, a bit different to the ones we've looked at already to why people might acquire. Now, one of them is for anybody with a menstrual cycle, your time of the month. If you menstruate, it's worth keeping an eye on whether your acquiring habits change throughout your cycle. I spotted a pattern where before my period, I am far more likely to do unnecessary shopping. I think for me, it's it's that I'm more impulsive in general for that week of the month in a number of ways. And I looked into this and found that it is a thing. There are some other theories mm-hmm. as to why as well. But is that something you um, have come across or... I've never heard that before, no. And I was really interested when you sent me those articles as well. I haven't had a chance to read them yet. But I think that's a really interesting, yeah, an interesting concept. And it makes sense to me in a way. Like I, I, I think I, I think intuitively I might do that, but I don't know. And I, I'm thinking back and I have just bought a whole bunch of stuff recently. Yeah. <laughs> it's worth tracking because until you're tracking yeah. it, you don't know. No. So that's why I should be tracking my no purchase. You know, like I used to track, you know, no purchases yeah. as well. You know, what purchase, what I purchased on each day kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and I've stopped doing that. But maybe I should go back and do that and then see what I can cross-reference. Yeah, because I worked yeah. it out years ago when I something else came up and my GP got me to fill in um, a cycle chart for – three months and Ah. it had loads of options to tick it wasn't just I think it was migraines we were looking into something like that but it wasn't just tick when you have a migraine and tick when you've got your period it asked about 20 different things and were they Mm. relevant and that was when I spotted that I was spending more and so then I went back and looked at my bank statements and sure enough, ah, oh, that's interesting. It went beyond the three months I was tracking it, and um, and so, and of course, once you become aware of it, you then you can look again and go, "Why is all this shopping arriving on to my house on the first day of my period?" Okay, <laughs> oh, that's right. <laughs> and it's oh. like that thing where your period starts and you go, that's why I've been an absolute nightmare the last few days. Exactly. It's a bit like that. I don't necessarily spot it when I'm doing it. But as soon as my period starts, I go, oh, yeah. Ah, that's it. That's why I hated everybody yesterday. And it's Uh, why I've got a new sofa coming. (laughs) (laughs) 
that. But it's all, you know, I know things like, I know uh, things like don't go supermarket shopping hungry, you know, yeah. things like that. But I hadn't kind of looked further into more biological stuff than that. But I think that's really very interesting. Yeah. So I would say track. If, you know, if you have a cycle, track it and just see, go for three months or six months and measure. Yeah. And, excellent. And the other, the final um, reason people might acquire is when we're influenced by alcohol or drugs, or as you mentioned earlier, a manic episode, if we're bipolar, mm. we have less self-control, I guess. Mm, yeah, it's that impulse control stuff, isn't it? We're just not, yeah, it's to do with the dopamine stuff because I was just reading about that. It was saying uh, that that can impact the, you know, your how much you're, how much you're buying, you know, any other sort of, you know, maybe being more sexually active, all that kind of stuff comes into that dopamine, yeah, excessive dopamine um, hit. So that's really interesting. And I, I do think that that's definitely something to be aware of, you know, going shopping while under the influence. Yeah. Yeah. Or the late night, the late night um, eBaying or whatever, you know, that's the one. Yeah wake up and see after you after a big night out and you check your email and you've got all these confirmation of your order like oh no <laughs> no no not again I don't look what did I buy now there's always someone going viral on Twitter for having ordered like a flock of sheep or something <laughs> when they live in a flat in New York <laughs> that would be me <laughs> after a few glasses of bubbly I'd order <laughs> a, an alpaca or something I've always wanted an alpaca they are lovely so we've looked at a load of reasons there why why everybody but people who hoard in particular might be susceptible to acquiring things they don't need obviously there are always things we do need but the balance of probability if you're a hoarder is that you don't necessarily actually need the thing you think you really you really need that bread maker and the bread maker is amazing for three months and then it's untouched after that or you really need a tent but it's winter and you're not going to use it for six months if at all so understanding like with understanding how marketing works and how persuasion mm. works understanding some of the reasons we might buy something can help us to move forward like as soon as I realized I was somehow trying to affirm my identity by buying elephant stuff I pretty much <laughs> stopped doing that and so it can really help to frame and reframe things and to just understand some of what we're doing and Next time, so in a month's time, we're going to be talking about what we can do about all of this, looking at some of those reasons again and the issues more generally about, I guess, impulse control, other ways to get a dopamine hit, all of that kind of thing we, we will talk about next time. So if people want to find you online, where can they do so? They can go to stuffology.com.au or uh, Facebook, Stuffology Consulting, Twitter, at stuff underscore ology or Instagram, 
at stuff, uh, sorry, at stuff underscore ology. Um, and yeah, email me at jan at stuffology.com.au. Do you have any burning questions you'd love me to answer? I'll get to the top tip in a second. But my first Q&A episode was really popular. So I'm going to be open to questions on a rolling basis. And then when I have enough, I'll make another episode answering them. Contact me on Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, Reddit, YouTube, or plain old email. All the links are on my website at overcomecompulsivehoarding.co.uk. Ask me anything and I will do my best to answer it. Now, your top tip. Madeline Dorr was a guest on a podcast called The Content Bite. Here's some advice she gave about what to do if you get to the end of the day and you feel like you've let yourself down and you've not made as much progress as you wanted to. What I tried to tell myself is actually um, there was this beautiful book that I read by Arnold Bennett and it was written in 1908 or something. So it's more than, you know, a century Mm -hmm. old I love reading those sort of texts that are older and that you can yeah. see the human worry is sort of there's this thread. Um, you know, we think that we're really busy now and I think we are probably busier than ever, but you can see that that struggle of productivity guilt and, and mm. worrying about wasted time is, is sort of also a human attribute. Mm. But in, in the book um, he writes about the beauty of time is that it cannot be wasted in advance. And so I think if you get to the end of the day, and you're worrying about everything that you didn't do or you're lamenting that you wasted time or you're feeling like you're mm. overwhelmed and you you sort of didn't do enough, that productivity guilt, there's a beautiful, I suppose, analogy of how, you know, we can turn over a new leaf every hour if we choose to. So we might have wasted today or maybe wasted this hour before mm. us or the morning, we fifth and faffed, but that doesn't mean we need to waste the afternoon or we need to carry this into t- tomorrow, you know. Mm. We can turn over a new leaf turn over a new day. It's not only a new day, but it's a diff- different day. Mm. I think that's the best thing we can do is, is sort of see that worrying about wasting time is probably the only true waste of time. Yes. There's always like that. otherwise something to, to pick up or learn or, you know, we connect with someone. So focusing on the things that that maybe um, we overlook and they're often small good things and then we can turn over a new leaf as well. I'll link to the podcast in the show notes. Really really good way of looking at it, I think. All right. Thank you for listening. And I will speak to you next time. Thank you for listening to the Overcome Compulsive Hoarding podcast. You can find more online at overcomecompulsivehoarding.co.uk. You can find me on Twitter at That Hoarder and on Facebook at Overcome Compulsive Hoarding with That Hoarder. To find out more about how you can support this podcast and the overall project, go to overcomecompulsivehoarding.co.uk forward slash support and do subscribe to this podcast so you make sure you don't miss any future episodes. Getting professional support as a hoarder can make all the difference. Having somebody on your side who can help you to learn about yourself and make progress in your home is invaluable, but finding an affordable therapist can be a nightmare. Accessing therapy online gives you the option to find the right person who doesn't even have to be in the same country as you, never mind the same town or city. 
OnlineTherapy.com offers a weekly live session with a CBT therapist for individuals or couples. It offers unlimited messaging, worksheets, a journal, and even yoga and meditation videos to help you cope. I have a special link for you that will get you a discount at overcomecompulsivehoarding.co.uk slash online therapy. As you know, I've had CBT, and two years later, I still use the realizations I had about myself, as well as the skills I learned. Listeners tell me that you've started to use some of the skills I've shared on this podcast. CBT is a therapy with a broad evidence base that is widely used for a range of mental health difficulties, including hoarding. OnlineTherapy.com specializes in CBT, and if you're not happy with your therapist, you can change to a new one with the click of a button. And prices start at $40 a week, which, if you've seen a therapist before, you'll know is incredibly cost-effective. What's more, if you use my link, you can get a whopping 20% off your first month. So sign up at overcomecompulsivehoarding.co.uk slash online therapy and get 20% off your first month with your new online CBT therapist.